sharing is a must. Microsoft wasn't built in a day. Apple wasn't built in a day. There is consistency that lasted decades that has taken them to where they are. But you can't do that if you don't. That's Adia Soho, the Chief Marketing Officer of MTN Nigeria, one of the most experienced and thoughtful operators in the African tech ecosystem. Did you design your career sort of explicitly to say that I want to have wide range of experience across all of these different stages? None of this was by design at all. An opportunity has met me at my level of preparedness. Let's talk about the decision to go back and forth between big corporate and, and small companies. Size of company doesn't matter. You're always gonna have a people issue. You're always gonna have a culture issue. The structure of the problems are the same. What sorts of conversations are you having with startups? My conversations are really around what's gonna give you cash, right yeah. now so you can stay alive and just get through this period. Why do you think MTN hired you? <laughs> um. This episode of The Flip is sponsored by Onafreak, formerly MFS Africa. Onafreak is the leading real-time payments network for Africa, which connects over 500 million mobile wallets across over 1,300 cross-border corridors and in over 40 countries across the African continent. Throughout this season, We'll hear from the Onafreak team about their work to create a borderless world. In this episode, we're joined by Guerra Kiwana, Onafreak's head of crypto, to talk about their recent partnership for stablecoin-enabled cross-border payments with Ripple. So with the new name comes new energy, invigorated energy into trying new things. And we've been working at this relationship with Ripple for quite some time now. And we've just launched uh, a, a formal partnership with them to build blockchain-enabled payments infrastructure uh, for Africa. We're utilizing uh, their technology to bring down the cost of cross-border payments, but also to make cross-border payments a lot more faster and more efficient. So as an individual, if I was to individually decide to send money across borders, especially to Africa, oftentimes that, that begins with using an app or using a service like a money transfer service or your bank. And a lot of those services traditionally are using traditional banking rails where they are um, using multiple different intermediaries. There's multiple intermediaries taking a slice of whatever fees and, and an FX margin that they can, they can take. So we're using Ripple's crypto technology uh, to really eliminate traditional problems such as lengthy transfer times, unreliable uh, execution when it comes to settlement, and also the excessive cost of using traditional rails. So it's, it's, it's a much better experience for the money transfer organization who can then pass those operational savings as well as cost savings onto their, their users. Bringing, like I said, faster, more efficient, cost-effective international money transfers to Africa uh, to accelerate financial inclusion across the continent. Last you and I collaborated was around a newsletter takeover that you did for the flip notes on the turnaround story of Thrive a Greek, where you sort of took us behind the scenes and shared your lessons and insights. In this season, I really want to extract insights and lessons from experienced operators from across the continent. And, and I think there's something interesting in there about, you know, sort of engendering a culture of sharing and, and sharing insights. So I want to start right there, just talking about your decision to share your insights really transparently and the sort of feedback that you got. What compelled you, besides, you know, perhaps my persuasiveness, to write about some of the lessons and to share those lessons publicly after your time as interim CEO there. Yeah, you're incredible persuasiveness. <laughs> so I had a similar conversation with um, Bosu Tijani recently, and he talked about how it's important for the elder statesmen and women in the ecosystem to share, because there's lots of stuff in our experience that's been accrued over 
over time. So yeah, I think sharing is a must. And I think if you look at the structure of a startup ecosystem, um, there are a bunch of elements. And, and the element with the stories is the exits. And in this market where we don't have as much structure around exits, because the, within the exits are the lessons, what to do well, what not to do well, right? So until we figure out what that looks like in a structured way, I think the stories and the discussions with people that have something to say are a must. Yeah, I talk about this with a friend of mine who was a advisor for an accelerator program, and he was telling me that some of the companies that he saw coming through the accelerator were pitching a business model that the company that he started failed with. Mm. So it was this idea that there wasn't actually this iteration across like cycles. Mm -hmm. um, do you feel that that's happening? Not enough. Yeah. Um, and, and that's an interesting example that you used, right? Because we, we, don't, we don't iterate on business models enough. And especially because we import a lot of business models as opposed to building them within our context. So, so I think the stories will help us understand which ones are truly legitimate for this environment because we, we, we absorb the stories from elsewhere. But then we don't, you know, I don't know whether it's because there aren't enough stories locally to absorb, but we should have more so that we can iterate. I think that yeah. iteration is very important. I think there is more. It's just about compelling people that it's okay to actually share those lessons. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, I wonder if there's like a, a safety issue, like a feeling of, because the minute you speak, then you get a, probably a lot more attention than you yeah. you wanted, bargained for, whether it's the right kind or the wrong kind, you know, black tax and all that, that, that all that comes into 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 play so so people the elder states women and and men need safe spaces too yeah <laughs> i mean m maybe in the case of thriving greek it's an easier story to share because it was sort of a success story of a successful turnaround but i also think that you know collectively we've talked about this you and i both got a lot of really amazing feedback from readers who just were so appreciative that these lessons were out there, so I would hope that I don't know. That's compelling you. You started since started the Substack, right? So is that I compelling did. you to um, share more lessons, th those sorts of experiences? To be honest, Justin, you should give yourself some a lot of credit, right? Because it, that that was a seminal moment for me, um, just because I'd been I'd written before, you know, but I'd been trying to find my voice and how I wanted to approach things, and just simply telling that. Uh, story. I think before I did, I, I really didn't pay so much attention to how much value that could add to someone else. But I've, I've since then gone on to have lots of conversations with lots of different people who have each expressed, you know, something in that story that meant something to them and mm -hmm. how it's changed the way they make decisions or how they work. So the light bulb went off, you know, for me in sort of deciding, okay, this is, this is, I can keep telling stories like this because I've got stories for days. So, yeah. So yeah, the Substack is born and we'll see how long I can keep yeah. that up. We'll link to that. We'll link to the, the newsletter takeover you did. Speaking specifically about Thrive a Greek, you know, I think the dust has settled. It's probably been six or more months since we published it, probably more, nine months or so since yeah, we published that. We did that um, a long time ago, yeah. What are the lessons and takeaways that, that you still have and how do you think about that time and what you've learned from that experience? Size of company doesn't matter. The structure of the problems are the same. I think you're always going to have a people issue. You're always going to have a, a, a like a culture issue. You're always going to have to think about who you're hiring. You're always going to have to balance 
long-term versus short-term. You're always going to have to balance whether you are strategically relevant in your space, like remaining so uh, as opposed to being commoditized. So the problems are actually the same. This was interesting when it hit me to see this parallel in a seed stage company versus a post-IPO company. So I'm constantly thinking about, you know, what the um, building blocks of a company are, what they mean, and how you structure them for scale and growth, and how you go back to first principles, and what first principles looks like at each stage. So that's one of the things that still stays with me, is that through sort of like working on growth, you know, at seed stage, series A, you know, B, and beyond, you know, how do you actually prepare for the next stage? Because the company has to look different at each stage, and how how, how do you do that? Yeah. You do seem to talk and write a lot about those topics, growth and operations and processes and scale. Is that because they are particularly important to you? Is that because it's what you think about the most? Is it because perhaps people aren't talking about it enough? Why are you focusing on those topics primarily when you when you share your insights? I think all of that, and I think it's also therapeutic for me because yeah. I, I don't know how I found myself tackling such hard problems. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he was like, your transitions, dude. How? Why do you keep going back and forth and you just like go from pre-seed to like yeah. multi-billion dollar company? And I'm like, I hadn't thought about it like that. But but yeah, I feel it now, now that I'm now that I'm going through the everyday. So I think I need to make it make sense. And that's what I'm trying to express in writing. And then there's a part of me that's kind of like, OK, I've gone through this pain because, you know, I went from being technical to being in consulting to managing a revenue line and each was like a painful what a dna change might feel like right Uh, so so i feel like having gone through that if i can save somebody else just a little bit of that pain i'd I'd like to yeah let's talk about then the decision to sort of go back and forth between (laughs) big corporate and and small company i was going to save it for later but let's do it right now i was very intrigued to see that you decided to go to MTN Nigeria, right? And I know for a fact that you, I think, had a lot of suitors, especially after you turned around to arrive in Greek and, you know, the the investors were calling and the the venture folks were calling to try and and, uh, get you involved. And you decided to go to, you know, big corporate, which we were talking before off camera about, you know, I'm a pretty anti-corporate guy, but my perspective is changing a little bit. So we'll get into that. But before I share my theories for why I think maybe you decided to go to MTN, (laughs) I'm curious to hear in your words why you decided to do that after you took some time off after Thrive. So I took some time off. I definitely didn't take enough. Um, In my head, my thought was that in an infrastructure light environment, which we are generally in Africa, um, the only way to to build the elements that we need for development is to to build digital infrastructure as opposed to physical. And telcos across Africa are uniquely positioned to do that um, if they're allowed to lean into that kind of innovation. I mean, mm-hmm. think about education, healthcare, um, commerce, all of that stuff can be built fairly easily with some focus um, using telco infrastructure as a baseline. So I took this role um, in the hopes of trying to be around that and sort of influence things in that direction um, from my position. But it's extremely difficult to, to achieve. I have a much clearer understanding of why that may not have been happening 
as quickly. Because, you know, when you're in the ecosystem, you're kind of like, oh, the telco should do this and the telco should do that. It's easy to say. But that was my motivation. I think, you know, the, the prospect of having that kind of impact, the prospect of having the next set of unicorns built on infrastructure, Apart, like like think about what connectivity has done for the yeah. continent, right? Just just what what else besides connectivity? You know, what do you build on top of connectivity? And I feel like there's there's still a lot more work for the telco um, to do uh, and could still do. So I I wanted to be supportive of that and bring what I learned in my my few years in the startup ecosystem back into a telco and just see whether that mindset. There was an audience for that kind of mindset. There. Yeah, and then of course it's it's also probably the biggest product job on the continent, so yeah. I couldn't say no to that. Yeah, right. So yeah, yeah. For me, if if I can, you know, share my two cents. I I Come think on. it's a it's it's an in like a an indication just of the outsized impact that telcos have on the continent mm-hmm. and in a country like Nigeria in particular that you would even consider that job, right? Mm-hmm. I think telcos are you know, sort of in the background in many other countries and, mm-hmm. and people who want to do innovation and impact certainly wouldn't consider them in, mm-hmm. in the U.S. or Europe. Mm-hmm. The scale you talked about, right, I, I don't know that there's any bigger scale in, in Nigeria than MTN. Mm-hmm. And I would also imagine, like, the fintech opportunity as well, right? Whether whether we think that telcos are innovative or not, mm-hmm. I think they've driven a lot of the innovation, mm-hmm. particularly from a fintech perspective, mm-hmm. may, maybe to a lesser extent in Nigeria, but certainly, obviously, the Safaricom M-Pesa story. Mm-hmm. All of that, I'd, I'd have to imagine, were a set of considerations when you were thinking about taking it. Mm-hmm. I mean, this might be a bit of a dad joke, but I, I do think that telco is the original tech bro, like, yeah. whether we like it or not. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's just uh, one of the things I hope to unpack is just we know how to build for the web, but how do you build for a telco, right? That's like a whole conversation that not enough people are having. Wiza wrote that USSD article that's now become famous and probably gotten mm-hmm. him like three jobs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> one article, right, about USSD. Um, but we need to keep having those conversations so that we understand how to build in our context, which unavoidably should involve a telco. Yeah. You used to talk a lot about partnering with telcos and, yeah. and the, the, the opportunity for startups to do that and, and how to do that. I right. know that that was part of your job at Migo. Is that some, still something that you think a lot about? It is, but I feel like um, those conversations are still hard. Um, the people are still the same. But I think the tech um, is changing. And I, I'm hoping that, you know, as more people apify or, you know, just build with API APIs first, those conversations are eliminated and people can just yeah. connect APIs and that becomes then the route to partnership as opposed to 80-page contracts. Yeah. Why do you think MTN hired you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, I think, well, actually, no, I should. that's a terrible answer. Um, <laughs> why did MTN hire me? I think MTN was interested in the same thing I'm interested in, right? You, you asked me just now, you know, why I took the job. I think for the exact same reasons is why... I made candidate for CMO. Like, uh, although it, at MTN, CMO means a bunch of different things. Like, because I have, you know, the core products that are, you know, a significant chunk of um, the revenue. I also, you know, manage all of the an- analytics with a the team there. And then there's the marketing. I think they were interested in sort of infusing a different kind of energy um, into that role because that's what it requires. Yeah. Now. I also have a, a bit of a half baked theory or hypothesis that, you know, I said before, I'm a bit anti-corporate, but Mm. I think if you look around the market today, I think a number of challenges that 
we're seeing, you know, specific companies in particular are a function of inexperience. And mm-hmm. a lot of the companies that are sort of built on stronger footing or foundations were started by, you know, people who spent some time in corporate. I mean, mm-hmm. GB with Access Bank and Flutterwave, mm-hmm. Dare was at MTN before mm-hmm. um, he set up MFS Africa. You know, I think there's a, a number of others. And, and so I'm sort of um, accepting the reality that uh, that corporate experience has tremendous benefit mm-hmm. and maybe it has particular benefit in these markets. Mm-hmm. And I guess maybe the, the, the way to ask you that question, first of all, is do you think that your prior corporate experience was beneficial in the startup roles that you worked in at Migo and, and Thrive Agree? Yeah, so there's no way I'm going to say it's not. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 if I'm living proof of anything, it's that. Yeah. Um, but I think there's that other study that said that successful startup founders are over 40. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, that, and that's from a global perspective. But like you said, I think especially in this environment with the volatility I think seasoned operators have seen a lot, and they definitely bring that to the table. I also think we need to, you know, just own the word inexperience, but see it as valuable, but not, you know, let's let's get rid of the shame around that. There's nothing wrong with um, not having operator experience, but there is there is value. I was a good candidate to go back to MTN because I have a mix of both. I understand you know, building from a blank slate as a startup, right? And MTN was was like that 22 years ago, right? So, you know, I think there's definitely the freshness of the perspective, like taking a childlike approach, you know, to building a company, right? As And combining that with um, what it takes to have a consistent machine that works every single day to meet a goal, right? And, 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 you know, Rome wasn't built in a day. Microsoft wasn't built in a day. Apple wasn't built in a day. There is consistency that lasted decades that has taken them to where they are. But but you can't do that if you don't sort of inculcate discipline. The really crazy thing about this founder-led era, and maybe we're sort of exiting the founder-led era a little bit hmm. now during a market downturn, is the sort of requirements of a founder to be so many different things at different points in the journey Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's talked about enough. It's just how crazy of expectations that is to Mm -hmm. be good at going from zero to one and then one to 10 and Mm -hmm. then 10 to 100 and Mm -hmm. then 100 to a million. Mm -hmm. Mark Zuckerberg, I think, is the exception, not the rule in in that case. Right. And I'm sure he also had a tremendous amount of infrastructure put around him to be Mm -hmm. able to support that. And Mm -hmm. I wouldn't argue he's actually good at all of that. I would argue that he's probably still a zero to one guy and then hired some people to just do the rest. You know, but made enough money to make sure they still report to him. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so who are the Sheryl Sandbergs right. to the Mark the Mark Zuckerbergs in Nigeria? Right. Right. I, I don't know that necessarily there are very many. Right. Right. I get called that a lot. You uh, do. <laughs> I do. I do. And I think there's no shame in having a Sheryl Sandberg. I, yeah. I, but I, I think that there is. Um, but not even that. There's no shame. It's that it's actually a necessary component of Facebook's success was that she was the Sheryl Sandberg yes, to the Mark Zuckerberg. Yes, yes, right? absolutely. And Google did the same thing too, right? I think that that relationship, though, where I've seen operators try to make that transition um, and start working with founders, inevitably some tension results. It's almost guaranteed. And then that, you know, sometimes shortens the amount of time that that founder-operator relationship can exist. So, I mean, that's something that you know, one day somehow I'd, I hope to unpack and just normalize that a little bit. Just hire somebody that knows more than you and be okay with it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Your five or 10 years experience versus their 30 years experience 
does not disempower you in any way, right? Because it, it just it just lots of like stuff gets triggered and it, then it just becomes this emotionally fraught and difficult relationship yeah. and then they don't last very long. So, so founders still feel that like they have to do everything and, and what is it like uh, an ego thing that they're not willing to hire the there's some, experienced people? There's some people? ego stuff there. There's some yeah. ego stuff there for sure, for sure. So it's a bit of that and then even when the operator comes in and you know, you actually are effective, Yeah. then that's now treated as an attack on one's confidence and I don't think that should be the case right but I've, I've just heard that story um, repeatedly and it, it's it's one of those things where you know I we should talk about yeah know? yeah what kind of business do you want to build and what are the necessary steps to actually building that business right. as opposed to right. you know staying at a certain level because right. you know and knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at and valuing you know, the people you pull into your team. One thing I think is quite interesting about your experience at MTN as it's juxtaposed to your prior experience is that you're now kind of doing the work at, or you have done and are doing the work at like every different stage of business all the way from sort of C stage to now public company. You talked a little bit about, you know, some of the problems being the same across all different types of companies, but are there there lessons that you're taking from your prior experience that you're bringing here? Is there sort of key takeaways? What is the experience like actually having worked across this stage and at different companies too? It's not like you've worked for one company taking it all the way through. It's you're sort of jumping around a little bit and I'm curious to hear what that's like for you. Just to, to walk through and say something about each company and maybe the answer to your question will come to me there. Um, so Thrive was a seed stage company. I joined Migo um, right at Series A, back then when a, a $13 million Series A was big news. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think I was employee number seven. Migo had a product, and we were trying to start scaling. I would say maybe the post-Series A company that I worked at would be Atisalat, which was at one point probably one of the fastest growing telcos in the world. And they were private when you worked there? Yes. Okay. And then I worked at a telco in the U.S. That was my first job. And I saw, you know, a couple of deals there, U.S. Cellular. But strangely enough, they have exactly the same number of subscribers they had then as they had now. They have 6 million subscribers. 20 years, 6 million subscribers. Like, it was insane. Wow. So, like, leaving there and then going to Atisala, which went from 5 million to 23 million in six years. It's just it's insane. And, and then now MTN, which is a multi-billion dollar revenue company. And then I also work for Deloitte, which is a, you know, 40 or $50 billion revenue company. So of course, these, these all happen at different sort of stages. I haven't been a leader in all of these companies. I, I am trying to get to a point where I can say these are the six building blocks of, yeah. of every company. But, you know, in each of them, you have to have observations about uh, culture. And, and not just culture as a word. I like to really unpack culture into um, behaviors and how those behaviors are designed um, and how um, that culture is maintained. Because it is, it is a process. It's an outcome of um, the way a company takes and chooses to take its actions. Like, how do you do that at each stage? There is some consideration for each stage. How do you sort of figure out, okay, company we do a and then it gets us b like that is essentially how every company generates value and like how do you make sure that that stays consistent in a company or changes when it needs to change or you know when it's broken that's a question that persists you know um across all of these companies how do you lead how do you evolve how do you keep growing these are all questions that 
that again remain consistent. So hopefully it's what whatever comes out when I unpack it fully is something neat yeah. that I can sort of have a discussion about. But it's it's astounding that there are actually similarities because I didn't I didn't really expect that. Like how do you construct analytics, right, in all of these companies? It is an important question at every stage. Right? And how does that evolve? as your hiring pool, because imagine there are like, what, 2,000 people that work at MTN Nigeria. Not everybody's going to be comfortable with a dashboard. So how do you build a dashboard um, that allows each person to know what their job is and how to react to the information in front of them, irrespective of what training they brought to the table? Mm -hmm. Where at Migo, we all were like in the same dashboard with the machine learning guys, right? But then as the company grew, you know, we had to start extracting the most relevant part for the BD team or the marketing team and so on and so forth. But all, you know, understanding how to do that, you know, in your company dictates how your company runs, dictates how efficiently you do A to get B. Yeah. Right. But very few companies actually sit down and think about that and think about how that needs to evolve. You just kind of put up something on the screen and think, okay, that works for where we are right now. Yeah. Right. We we also talked earlier about the value of experience. Yeah. Um, did you design your career sort of explicitly to say that I want to have this sort of wide range of experience across all of these different stages or, or did it just end up that way? Absolutely not. I think I just gravitate towards pain and I, I might need to <laughs> I might need to see somebody about that. No, none of this was by design at all. I think um one thing I tell people, because it, it, it's, it's a bit of a big question. What do you want to do next? Who do you want to be in five years? And if you can answer that question, kudos to you. But for those of us that can't, I think what's helped me is my curiosity, even though I didn't know what it was. I think, I think an opportunity has met me at my level of preparedness, um, which is usually fierce. Like, you know, generally, if I'm just interested in something, I'm probably reading something about it every single day mm-hmm. or reading a newsletter. Mm-hmm. Right. So each job has kind of met me you know, at that level, um, at that particular point in time. So, uh, no, I definitely didn't do this by design. But do you, do you feel grateful to your former self that you made the career decisions you've made? I feel like regret is a bit of a waste of time emotion. It yeah. is what it is. But um, I don't mean regret. I, I mean, actually, like you are glad that you had this wide variance of experiences because it benefits you now. Well, like you did the your former self did the work yeah. that's re- that you're really benefiting from today. Yeah, but I, I'd have to check my bank account in a few years. Like if it doesn't convert, then what yeah. was it for? Like I have to make it has to have meaning. I, I short answer is yes, you know, but ultimately I need to make it meaningful. And I think that's one of the reasons I'm trying to write and I'm talking is like I need that's not going to affect your bank account positively, though. Damn. Yeah, I can tell you. <laughs> I you might need so. to find a better way to measure. <laughs> to measure. Yeah. But yeah, 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 no, definitely I'm happy with where I am. I still enjoy, you know, what I do. Um, you know, I still uh, enjoy solving problems. I yeah. still um, hope to contribute to the ecosystem and sort of, you know, lift our continent up, yeah. you know. But um, but yeah, so I am I am grateful. But I think it's it's not even are you happy where you are today, but is it's are you particularly good at what you're doing today because you had the ex- prior experiences? Absolutely. And I, I think the way jobs come together these days, um, there are very few of them that are like there's an, an emerging category of jobs 
that somehow align themselves to all the things you've done in the past, or at least your expression, you know, in a particular role will align itself with everything you've done up until that particular moment. Like, for instance, one of the things I got really good at at Migo was being a really good product manager, right? Because at the time, myself and Akechi were literally obsessing over that product every day, day in, day out, you know, tweaking this, changing that. So, so that really sharpened that for me. Like, and at Thrive, it was company structure, just sort of overlooking how a team works to ensure that they're working in concert to lead to the desired outcome, not the undesirable outcome, which was the crisis um, that Thrive got itself into. So those things added up to me getting to, to MTN, which is a company also trying to, you know, stay relevant, stay a market leader, um, but at the same time, increase its relevance and become a tech co. Right. So so both of those things directly fit into that. You know, yeah. I also worked at another telco before that was a lot, you know, smaller, lighter on its feet, had less legacy technology. So, again, these things have a way of always um, adding up. One just has to be self-aware or introspective enough to say, OK, this plus this plus this plus this makes me this kind of manager yeah. and I'm going to lean into that. Yeah. Right. Sometimes I think even it's an implicit thing. It's like deep in your soul, you know that this is what you should be doing. And if you're not really thinking about it, sometimes you, you might end up there right? anyway. At somebody least that's will how tell I you. feel sometimes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And somebody will tell you, but I, I think you have to have a moment where for it to really start to give you joy and energy, I think you have to have a moment where you stop and be like, okay, what am I about? What am I good at? What do yeah. I know? Right. And what's my takeaway from each of these experiences, successes or failures? All of it adds up and all of it is meaningful. Right. And I think there's, there's something powerful that happens when you just know your superpowers. You yeah. Just lean into that. I find that exercise to be very hard. And it painful. is extremely hard. It's extremely hard. But ask your friends. If you have good friends, they'll tell you. Yeah. I just want them to tell me what to do. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> this season of The Flip is all about sharing lessons and insights from some of the most experienced and esteemed founders from across the African tech ecosystem. And it's a mission for which we're proud to partner with Norskin22 to share wisdom and insights from the fund's unicorn board as well. We know that advisors and mentorship are an important part of the venture funding process. And throughout this season, we are speaking to and learning from the successful founders, operators, and investors from Norskin22's unicorn board. In today's episode, we're joined by Hans Otterling, former partner of one of Europe's most successful venture funds, North Zone, and a co-founder of Norskin22. The most successful entrepreneurs that I've seen, they have had a very strong vision of where they're going, what they, what they want to do. They've been able to sell you know, their vision to people to invest and to employees and to everyone. But most core of it, they've also been able to create that trust that people trust uh, the entrepreneur. You know, he feels like he or she knows what, what they go doing and, and they act in a trustful way. I, I was actually um, invited to the Stockholm School of Economics to, uh, to, for, for an afternoon run through how a venture fund works. So I run through, you know, term sheet, evaluation, exits, you know, all that things and all the students were taking notes like crazy. And then after three hours, I said, now you can put your pay, pens away because now I'm going to say the most important thing. If you don't have this, you're never going to succeed. If you cannot create this, you're never going to succeed. And the word is trust because this, this is a long term game. If you cannot create trust with your investors, with your employees, with your customers, etc., then you will probably fail. We went out to dinner the other night and we were talking a little bit about the challenges of operating 
in Nigeria, right? And they were challenges that you experience today at MTN that I think the startups also experience, right? And, and I just thought it was interesting to hear you talk a little bit about the just sort of general market challenges that um, no one can escape, yes. right? And I was curious just to get a, a, a little bit more of your perspective on the just general like vibe operating in Nigeria. I think we also talk about market downturn right now. I think startups are concerned about, well, are they going to be able to raise money going forward? And, and there's, I think, some compounding stressors on top of this general market challenge that you and I were talking about the other night. Do you have like a sort of sense or vibe? Like what, what's your vibe as we're talking about this market downturn? I know it might be a little bit different mm. in your current role, but how mm. are you feeling or what are you thinking about uh, these days? It's tough to see the forest from the trees, right? Um, and I, I'm not really a good person at like having future vibes. I think I just find ways to cope yeah. in the moment and I usually do that by probably you know trying to unpack what's going on and and for me it's, it's just the sheer scale of you know the same thing founders are complaining about is the same thing sort of MTN is is struggling with even as like a large company but it, it's almost like blink and you lose a billion naira like it's just, yeah. just you know I, except I just... MTN has a billion naira to lose and the startups <laughs> do maybe we know? do we know I... I see so when you're listed you owe like it, the, if you if your dividends are late, that's a different story. So so it's almost like the founder investor fundraising conversation. There's a version of that in MTN because every quarter we have deliverables to meet, and if we don't meet those deliverables, there is yeah. a financial impact uh, on the company. So it's it's almost like founders are struggling to grow. We're trying to outpace inflation. You know, founders are trying to manage costs. You know, we're, you know, such a big target, like when you're listed and you're our size, some regulator or regulation will just, you know, show up. Those things don't come with much notice. They just yeah. show up and that adds to your costs, you know. And then you're like, okay, how do I, how do I catch up so I can keep my promises to investors? Then you go back and look and see what you can optimize internally. And, and I think it's cute when startups talk about technical debt. Try being a 20-year-old <laughs> company, right? And, and the guy that made, you know, the thingamajig that you bought 20 years ago is long dead and buried mm -hmm. and hopefully in heaven. A and the thing breaks. Yeah. What do you do? So so it's it's the same. Like, it's it's the sameness is astounding to me. For me, it's just... Right now, I cannot see past my everyday problems. I, I will admit that. So so I'm leaving the vibes for now. Maybe they'll they'll strike me one day. But I mean, all we can do, though, is persist. And I think that's the that's the grit that you have to have to yeah. continue to stay in this market and, and the love. You know what I mean? That's that's what can, that's what's going to keep you pushing and, you know, not giving up. Yeah. A very Nigerian story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. When you were talking earlier, one of the lessons you said that you had from Thriver Greek was that the problems are the same no yeah. matter what stage. Yeah. And I was thinking, well, it must be nice to be a well-resourced company to be able to deal with those problems versus a less resourced company and the, the inherent challenge of dealing with all those problems with less resources. But I don't know, maybe there's a different set of considerations. You know, there's really a, sh a short-term consideration when you're a listed company. And so does it feel the same, I suppose, or um, similar to, you know, your time in working with startups? Or It feels the same to me. For me, it's really very much like a more money, more problems type of situation. Mm. So it, it's not, um, yes, there are resources, and yes, they can be put to work. Uh, but at the same time, that does come with its own, with its own baggage. 
So it doesn't it doesn't relieve or make any of those problems disappear. It yeah. just it just you know yeah. changes the scale and changes the shape of the problem. But yeah. they're still there. Yeah. So I, I know you're you know a, a sort of step further outside of the startup ecosystem right mm -hmm. now. But mm -hmm. you know you still sit on some boards and and do some work with them. What sorts of conversations are you having with startups, especially you know in the context of again market challenges mm -hmm. and everything else we just talked about? Mm. Right now, it's mostly about. Um, operating without an in an external infusion of funds like how can you go from idea to somebody paying you so that at least you can sustain yourself just keep the lights on i talk a lot about um, bringing forward business development like how can people prepay you for services um, that you can render restructuring your roadmap away from stuff that's just fancy um, or fantasy right and that has high utility and you know some nowness and that people will pay you for immediately so my conversations are really around what's going to give you cash right yeah. now um so you can stay alive and just get through this period because you know you don't control what's happening like inflation no nobody's sort of like that's completely out of your control so yeah. what you can control though is how much cash your startup um makes so you need to be very practical you know, put your put your dreams on a vision board for now. Yeah. And focus. Do you think that especially considering the challenging operating environment we just talked about before, mm -hmm. that that should have always been a focus for African startups or Nigerian startups in particular? This we need to be profitable and control our own destiny because even if the money is coming from overseas investors, like during the good times we always sort of said, Well, is this tourism dollars and is it going to go away and now yeah. that it's going away everyone's sort of reactive i guess it's kind of ridiculous to say should they have but um you know this is again maybe this idea about the the, the lessons that we can carry forward and are we learning mm -hmm. right for a lot of people right it was the first global recession mm -hmm. you know for me at least right i was i graduated high school in 2008 so I didn't know what it was like to go through a recession until now and i was like oh this is what it actually feels like yeah, to well, see multiple I, I... banks not to age myself, I think that was when I first, that was my first layoff. I think I was in 08, 09. Yeah. 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 I would imagine then that these lessons get carried forward or is it hard to learn, you know, if, if in 10 years, you mm. know, are, are the same mistakes going to be made over again, even by the people who are, you know, in their 40s? Right. So that that's why we need to talk about this stuff, yeah. right? And just make sure it's recorded somewhere. Um, I think there is some... You know, people say this, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I think this is where um, wisdom, um, you need to find your sources of wisdom and make sure that you are keying into what they're saying. And sometimes it takes repetition. Like think about the great books you've read, how you read them once and by the time you read them again, you see a completely different set of lessons that you might not have seen before. So it does bear repeating. Um, and, and this is one of the things that I, I really want to try and spend time unpacking in my writing. Uh, because some of these concepts are so big and unapproachable. Yeah. You know, and you, you, you just don't know how they affect you in your everyday. And you don't know which decisions you're making are leaving you unprepared for a crisis. But it's all like these great big words like inflation. Like, how do you think about that in a startup? Yeah. Like, what does that mean to you? Yeah. You know, and, and, and just, you know, understanding that you haven't really grown. If your growth rate is below inflation... For some people, it's like a major light bulb moment. So, so these are the things that are worth um, talking about. And you know, I'll do my best to contribute to the pool. And I hope that other yeah. elder statesmen and women 
you know. We have to tell all your yeah, all yeah. your experienced friends to come see me. Ha! Yeah, no problem. No but problem. it but it is. I mean, that work is hard. It's hard. Right? It's hard. I think you talked a lot in your um piece on on the Thrive Agree turnaround about, you know, just asking good questions, right? I know that that's something that's important to you, right? And that idea about probing into why did this thing happen or whatever and getting down first principles, right? Digging deeper is like hard work. And, and you know, when you can only see in front of your face, as you said right now about the problems today, mm-hmm. right? I mean, mm-hmm. ev- that's why everyone needs a, you know, yeah. everyone needs a sabbatical or something so they can actually <laughs> think. But I agree. I mean, I, I think questions also for me is like a historical and emotional, you know, like element of that, right? Because in our culture, questions aren't particularly well received especially when you're asking them um, from someone that's older than you um, you know they're just not permitted you will receive the knowledge you're giving and you are to process it so for me that that always created friction with asking questions um, for me and, and that's why it's one of the things I try to encourage because even today when I manage teams I, I don't get enough I feel like I don't get asked enough questions so it's something I have to beg people to do mm. So, so setting the, the cultural context aside, I think the importance of asking questions um, became clear to me as I wanted to explain its relevance to people. So, so it's, it's one thing to experience something. It's another thing to, to sort of look, reflect on that experience and then explain it to someone else. Yeah. The importance of questions started to elevate to me, um, you know, as, as an important element of critical thinking. You know, and I think for us, critical thinking is even elevated further when you, sorry, I'm getting a bit meta, um, when you consider that a lot of our problems are chronic and repeated, and we talk about the same things all the time. If you ask questions at the wrong level, you end up treating the symptoms and not the disease. And and when you start thinking about things as as a system, then you start to, you know, go to the root cause and start talking about causality. And then you find that beautiful things happen when you address causality, like the whole thing just completely changes. And, and, then, and then you can start making serious step changes in your uh, conversations. I'm, I'm going to try to think about a, an example to bring this to life at some point. If it comes to me while we're talking, I, I will. Yeah. I'll share. Yeah. I mean, I think about the prosperity paradox, for example, right? Where at yeah. the very beginning they talk about we built wells yes right and that that was a perfect example and maybe this is a a bit derivative but like the well was the symptom right and then they'd come back and there was no um like maintenance of it right Mm -hmm. and so in a year or two it would be in disrepair or whatever right and it wouldn't be utilized and then they realized that there's actually a sort of set of conditions that sort of enables one to best utilize a well Mm -hmm. or programming around it or Mm -hmm. whatever Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. um infrastructure that is is required in order for that to be better utilized mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's not just like a you build this thing and it'll sort of go on serving its need forever without sort of other problems being solved mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right mm-hmm. or another maybe a better example would be like um you know they used to do the like pico solar home things mm-hmm. right and then people were like no one had any appliances to charge <laughs> you know so they gave electricity <laughs> and there was no appliances right and they're like oh so we're not actually just selling solar systems we're selling a sort of full stack of yeah. things, right? Yeah. And so often I think the right the, the one thing that Chai and I talk a lot about is like the problems are multi-layered and it compels people they to build are. build full stack just necessarily I think like taking a vertical approach is is necessary because there are problems at like every element mm-hmm. of the stack or whatever, right? Agreed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so and that gotta... makes that makes for better businesses, but it's a harder 
set of problems to solve it in order to actually is. solve that one problem. It is. Yeah. It is. I think that the iceberg is a common mm. like uh, metaphor for sort of dealing with the, the, the bit you can see and then there's all this stuff underneath that you can't see. So I found that you just get much better results when you ask questions to help you see the whole system and the whole ecosystem and then when you understand what, what is breaking it, you know, and then address that, then the thing just returns yeah. to normalcy. Is there any other general advice that you have or, or anything that you're thinking a lot about right now? And it, it might be specific to MTN, but, but what's sort of going through your mind that if this is a therapy session, you'd want to get off your chest? <laughs> um, let's build well-fed goats, not unicorns. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just, just, I'm not saying lower standards or put your dreams in a box, but I think a, a company of a decent size. Mm-hmm. Um, is still a great thing. I think for me, what's on my mind a lot now is still growth. And I'm a bit, I'm just pondering like why I'm still thinking about that in a post-IPO company. Yeah. Right? But when you're at that stage, you still have to avoid commoditization, right? Which becomes your, like everybody's target to commoditize. You know, yeah. when you're that big, everybody, like look at what's happening in Nigeria now with, MVNOs, there are hundreds of companies that want to build a telco. I'm not sure how many of them understand the business, or I'm sure there's a spectrum of, of understanding of, of what it takes to build a business like that. But it, it's a lot. Everybody wants your pie. Mm-hmm. You know, so then what do you do next? Um, because when the competitive environment changes like that, and then you're down to just like haggling with your customer every day, you know, what's the next revenue stream that you have to build that's haggle-proof, right? That you can just own and that nobody else can replicate. Yeah. So there's no resting on your laurels. There even is if no you're the resting biggest. at all. Yeah. There's no resting at all. And I, I think that's, that's, the, <laughs> that, that's the thing. I mean, not that I went there to rest. I mean, I, I went there to definitely do other things. But you, you cannot, you can't. I have to sleep with my eyes open. It's, it's just really, really, really intense and to be that size and listed and just stakeholders and obligations everywhere so it's 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 uh it's definitely on my mind 24/7 i mean this this physical meeting is a rare thing for me these days like everybody just sees me on whatsapp i yeah. just have no time because i have to obsess over the problems of running a, a, a team and revenue line the size of what I'm dealing yeah. with. Well, I feel honored that uh, you're gracing me with your presence here. <laughs> a little bit. It was a little lucky, right? But nonetheless, yes. we take advantage of luck when, yes, when it's indeed. given to us. Yes, indeed. So as a newsletter writer yourself, to wrap up, do you want to plug your newsletter, Twitter? What, where <laughs> where um, should we send people to, to uh, learn more from you? Uh, adia.substack.com. The newsletter is called Leap of Scale. And what I am trying to talk about in the newsletter is for us to not think about scale as a destination, but more of as a process. And it's, it's lots of tiny decisions that you make along the way every day um, with the people you hire, with how you build your company, with how you build your product. I'm trying to unpack that just from my experience of having driven growth in some way at Almost every stage you can do that um, in a company's life cycle. So, so yeah, that's going to be something I spend the immediate future working on. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Adia, thanks so much for taking the time. I appreciate it.
Appreciate it, Justin. Cool. Thank you. It's always fun.